This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hi, I'm Raylene Berry. I am truly excited to be your host for today's podcast. Trials are inevitable and they are all around us, but scripture shows us that they have a purpose. Today, we will hear from Grace alumnus, former adjunct professor, Bible teacher, and pastor Mark Ray, who has stepped into the role of VP of Community Development for Grace and executive director of the Center for Grace. Now we will continue in our six-part series, Strong at the Broken Places. Last podcast, we talked about trials. They are inevitable. Our response, which is to look to Jesus, and the result, which is a maturing perfection. Today, we look at the second thing that can break us, failure. Let's listen in as Mark Ray, who taught this series at Midland Bible Church, shares with us failure is not fatal. My wife and I were driving from Albuquerque, New Mexico, up to Flagstaff, Arizona. And as we were on this two-lane highway, a car pulled in front of us, and a little rock from the tire of the car in front of us flipped back and hit my windshield and put a little tiny chip in my windshield. You ever had that happen? A little tiny, here in Midland, it probably happens to many of you every day. This little tiny chip hit my windshield, and you know, the whole time we're driving, I'm wondering if that thing is gonna crack and go the entire length of my windshield, and I'd have to replace the window. We got back to Midland, and the chip was still there. I called a repair company, they came out, and through this process of putting a resin in the middle of that crack, they said, number one, we have now made this chip and the resin in it stronger than the glass that's around it, We will guarantee that no cracks will emanate from it. But he said one thing that really struck me. He said, but there will always be a scar. There will always be a little reminder in this scar of this chip that was in this window. Though we've made it as strong as it can be, though we have kept it from fracturing your entire windshield, there will always be a little scar. And now when I drive, There's this little black mark that every time I look, my attention is drawn to this little scar. We're in a six-week series called Strong at the Broken Places, and last week we took a look at one of the things that breaks us. Ernest Hemingway says, life breaks us all, and many of us are made stronger at the broken places. We looked at some beautiful examples of what's called kintsugi, pottery that is, by virtue of its brokenness, has been repaired to be something even more beautiful because it's been broken. And we looked at what trials do in our life and how God moves to repair us so that what comes out of that repair is something more beautiful than what was there before because it's been broken and repaired and you see God's fingerprints all over it. Today, we're gonna look at the second of six things that breaks us in life. And this one is a little word called failure. What I want to talk about failure is this, that God gives us gifts to work through the failures so that 
Though there may be a little scar left, the failures don't crack all the way through our windshield and become fatal. And we're going to look at, in the life of probably one of the biggest examples of failures in his life, the Apostle Peter, throughout his life, we're going to look at three examples of failures in his life because every one of us has experienced failure. Failure in relationships, failure in marriages, failure in jobs, failure in school, failure as parents, failure as kids, failure in our finance. Failure is, it permeates every one of our lives. And if we don't attach ourselves to these gifts, what failure can do is absolutely crack us and shatter us rather than leaving us a little scar as a reminder. So let's look at failure in the life of Peter, these three examples, and there are numerous examples in the life of Peter, and what I want us to see is the the three gifts that God gives us in the midst of failure to walk through our failure and see us strong at the broken places that failure does to us. The things we're going to see are the gifts from God. He gives us wisdom to see. He gives us faith to stand And he gives us grace to serve. Let's look at the life of Peter, if we can, and and what Peter has gone through. First, we start with wisdom to see. I want you to hear what James chapter 1, verse 5 says. We looked at James 1 through 4, as James talked about, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And what that does, but he concludes that little section with this statement. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom, defined as applying our knowledge to the experience. Applying knowledge to the experience. And what James says is when you apply knowledge to experience, you begin to see things that you may not have seen before. If you lack wisdom in the midst of a trial, if you lack being able to see And I'm going to put it this way because James goes on to say this. If you lack the wisdom to be able to see Christ in the midst of your failure, then you've missed it completely. What James says is ask God. Now that ask is in the present tense and it means ask continually. You ask at the beginning of a struggle. You ask in the middle of that. You ask at the end of it, even after that failure has happened, so that you can look back and assess and look to see the places where you see Christ in the middle of it. James says, ask God for the wisdom to be able to apply the knowledge that you have to the circumstance that you're in so that failure doesn't destroy you. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a knowing fool, but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, which means I understand God in relationship to me, and I understand how magnificent he is, and I follow him, I serve him, I humble myself to him. Let's look at the life of Peter. This first story is gonna come out of Luke chapter five, verses one through 11. Now you may know this story, But I'm going to walk you through some of the particulars to bring you into seeing wisdom in the midst of this. 
This is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So it was, verse 1, as the multitude pressed about to hear him and to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now first, understand, lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. So he's standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's in Peter's hometown. Peter is a fisherman. He has a thriving fishing business. He is the master of his business with a couple of guys in the business with him. Jesus is standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's about to preach the word of God. He's about to preach wisdom. He's about to preach about taking the knowledge that you have and applying it. And he saw two boats standing by, verse 2, standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Now, why would this be? You would think it's the middle of the day. They ought to be out working. They ought to be out fishing. They ought to be after the business of making a living. Well, the Sea of Galilee is a different place to fish. Historically, the Sea of Galilee is a place that when the cool waters in the middle of the night come, the fish come to the surface because that's when the insects come on the cool waters up at the surface. So you fish all night because the fish come to the surface. And when you're throwing nets out, they can only go so deep. So when the cool air comes and the water gets cool at the surface, the fish rise, and that's when you fish. During the day, you don't fish because the water heats up, the fish dive deep, and your nets can't reach them. So no wonder these guys are out mending their nets in the middle of the day. That's part of their work. They're mending them, preparing them for the nights where the fishing. Jesus gets into one of the boats, which happens to be Peter's, and asks him to put out a little from the land, and he sits down and teaches the multitude from the boat. So get the picture. Peter's one of his boats in his fleet. Jesus gets in and says, Peter, would you push the boat out? Come on with me. Let's go out, and and I want to preach to this crowd. So Peter gets a chance to kind of sit in the boat. He's a little bit of the center of attention, and Jesus preaches to the crowd. After he's through preaching, verse 4, He stopped speaking. He said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, you're Peter. You're sitting in the boat with Jesus. You know the only time to fish is the night before, all during the night. It's middle of the afternoon, and Jesus says, Peter, push out and let's go fishing. Put your nets out for a catch. Now, if you're Peter, what are you thinking right now? No way. This guy's a landlubber. He doesn't understand fishing. This is my fishing hole. This is my fleet. And I would bet there's even a little bit of this to Peter that he's going to say this in just a minute. He fished all night and he didn't catch a thing. So he's been a little bit humiliated during the course of the night that this guy, the master fisherman with his fleet, they went out all night. They didn't catch a single thing. They come back in the morning and now he wants me to go out in the middle of the afternoon and let my nets down for a catch in the middle of the afternoon when I know for certain I will not catch a thing. Don't you think that there's a little bit of Peter that might be thinking, I don't want to be humiliated all over again. I've already had to come back in and show the entire world who's sitting on the seashore listening to this guy preach that I haven't caught a thing the night before. That the night before was a failure. I didn't catch a single thing the night before. And now he wants me to set out into the middle of the water and put down my net for a catch. Simon answered and said to Jesus, I love the little word but in there, verse 5, the contrast. Jesus says, go do this. Simon says, uh, excuse me, Lord, just a minute. Um, I've caught, uh, we've told, told all night. 
That word master is actually the word sir in the Greek. Sir, we've toiled all night. It's a, a measure of respect. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. In other words, Jesus, do you not get the picture here? We fished all night long, not a single fish, and now you're asking me to do this again in the middle of the day when I know for a fact nothing's going to come in the boat. Nevertheless, at your word, when we don't catch a fish, guess who it's on? It's on you, Jesus. It's not on me. Because I'm the fisherman, and I know fish, and I know if we didn't catch it tonight, last night, we're not going to catch it today. So nevertheless, even though I've already laid the groundwork to say we're not going to catch fish, even though that, nevertheless, at your word, because you say so, I'm going to let down my net and just watch. Watch what happens, because we're not pulling in a thing. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. There's this catch that's beyond comprehension. It's beyond explanation. And in that moment, Peter has to be thinking, what in the world is going on because there's no way we should be catching fish? Information, knowledge. We don't catch fish the night before, but we're catching fish. Something's different here about this guy. And listen to Peter's response. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Let me just show you wisdom for just a moment. Peter, first of all, calls him Lord. Good move, Peter, because this guy has just completely done the opposite of what nature tells you to do and what your fishing has said. You've got more fish than you know what to do with. There's obviously something different about him, but there's also something different, Peter, about what you just did with Jesus because your pride was off the charts. There was no humility in you at all because you were telling who you will come to know as the Lord of Lords, you were telling him he knew not a single thing about what he was doing. And so what Peter does is he takes the knowledge he's got now. Wow, the fish. They filled the boat. They never should have done that. This guy's different. This guy's different from me. I'm a sinner. He's the Lord. And what he says is, Depart from me. I can't be in your presence because I am such a sinner, because of my pride. What Peter does is he takes the knowledge that he's got and in wisdom applies it to the situation and humbles himself, realizes who he's in the midst of, who he's, who's in the boat with him, and he humbles himself. And I want you to see Jesus' response to this because this is really cool. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish of which they had taken. Yeah, all the rest of the, the fishermen there, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. For now on, from now on, you will catch men. In fact, in the other translations, it actually says this, do not be afraid, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. Now, I want you to see the second part of wisdom because this is what Peter and the rest of the disciples do right then. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. Can I just talk to you a moment about wisdom? 
When Christ is in the middle of a situation that looks like a failure and he's in the middle of that situation with you and he says, follow me in the middle of it, what does wisdom say I ought to do? Follow him. He is master of it all. He knows where the fish are. He knew exactly where the fish were for Peter. And what he showed him was his lordship. He showed him his sovereignty. He showed him also his love for Peter, and he didn't look at Peter and say, you dummy, don't you know who I am? He didn't look at Peter and say, you're a failure, let me show you how you you do this. He didn't look at Peter and say, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. What he did with Peter is he said, you have shown that you know who I am and you know who you are. You've given me humility, and I can work with humility, so follow me. There's wisdom. Peter knew who he was. He was the sinner in the midst of the Lord. He knew who Christ was. He was the Lord. And he was given the opportunity to apply the wisdom of knowing who Christ is and who he was. He was given the opportunity to apply it to the situation and follow Jesus, which is exactly what he did. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, failure is an event. It's never a person. Now, let me repeat that because there was a great amen over here, and we all ought to be saying that. Failure is an event. It's never a person. Christ didn't create failures. What we do is we get involved in situations in which we may fail, but when we have the wisdom to apply Christ in the middle of it, we can see him at work, and it's no longer a failure because he's teaching us something through it. Christ may bring us through a failure to teach us something in the middle of it, like who he is and who I am. Like my pride is off the charts. Like I ought to be a little more humble. Like watch me at work. Or how about follow me? Well, the second gift that he gives us, I call it a faith to stand. I want you to hear what Peter says out of his letter, 1 Peter. First of all, in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What he's basically telling us is the foundation for your faith is in the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. That's the foundation of your faith. That's the foundation of your hope. He goes on in verses 6 to 8, which I love. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. You could even put the word failures in there. You have been grieved by those that the genuineness of your faith, this is a word we talked about last week, the completion, the maturity The perfection of your faith is what he's talking about. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes because your faith doesn't, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he tells us here is that our faith gets tested in the middle of these failures. And our faith gets tested so that it will become complete and mature. It's another one of those wonderful things that Christ does in the midst of a failure so that we don't get crushed, so that we don't get downtrodden, so that we don't get discouraged. But in the middle of that failure, he walks us through that. Let me show you what Peter, what happens to Peter in this one. He has... Out of Peter, and what caused him to write this is this living hope, this genuineness of faith, genuineness of faith that through Peter's examples, through Peter's experiences of failure, boy, was his faith growing like crazy. Here's another one. 
This comes out of Matthew chapter 14. And we know this story, but I want to give you just the idea of faith in the midst of this story. This is verses, starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. Anytime you see in scripture, go to the other side, go to the other side is like go to the wrong side of the tracks. The other side is where the demon-possessed people were. The other side is where the, the, the Samaritans were. The other side is where it was a really bad place to go. And what he's going to tell them is, go row over there, and I'm going to join you over there on the bad side of town. A place to be able to exercise your faith. And when he had sent the multitudes away, verse 22, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Not a bad thing to do in the midst of where they were going. Now when evening came, he was alone. So get the picture. The disciples are in the boat. Jesus is on the mountain on this shore. They're rowing to the other shore, which means when Jesus wants to get to the other side, he's got to hitch a ride. He's got to get there somehow. He's got to get to the other side. But the boat was now, let's see, verse 23, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he, oh, he went up to the mountains to pray, he was alone. But the boat, verse 24, was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, and the wind was contrary. The wind is blowing at them. They've been rowing all night. They're getting exhausted. They can't seem to make ground. And verse 25 says, now it was the fourth watch of the night. Jesus went to them. It's been about eight hours that they've been rowing. They have been rowing for a long time not making any progress at all. Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Well, of course, if you're going to get to the other side, how do you do it? I just... Step on out, walk on the water, right? When the disciples, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. They were troubled. They were Troubled? They were terrified. They were absent. They were exhausted. They'd been rowing. They look through the mist and the wind and they see this figure coming walking on the water and they are absolutely struck terrified. They cried out for fear. It's a ghost. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. If you're in the boat and you've been rowing all night and you think a ghost is coming in, you hear these words coming from the, boast, from, the, from the ghost, be of good cheer. It is I. What are you thinking right now? I'm delirious. I'm having hallucinations. I'm, I'm nuts. But Jesus gives them through his own voice why they should not be afraid. Because Jesus is in the middle of it. And, guess, and, and he's walking on the water, which is that indication. They've seen him do miracles over and over again. Now he's walking on the water. And he's coming straight to them. And good old Peter. Verse 28. Peter answered him. He answered this, be of good cheer. It's I, do not be afraid. What he's answering is, when Jesus says, it's I, Peter's going to say, prove it. Lord, if it is you. Isn't that a great statement? Here's this guy walking on the water, says, be of good cheer, it's I. And Peter goes, really? Okay, prove that it's you. If it is you, Lord, he calls him Lord. Lord, if it is you, is that just weird? 
Or is it just me? It's probably just me. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So in other words, what he says to him is prove it. Prove that it's you. Prove that you're the Lord. Prove that you're the one. But let me come out there and do it. This is classic Peter. And Jesus says, big boy, come on. Walk on, come to me. Come on. Get in, the, get in the water, walk this way. Come on. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now this, I love the way Matthew puts this. It's almost like this is no big deal. Peter hikes a foot over the boat, puts it on the water, and starts to walk. No, can't you just see Peter? I'm going to test this thing and see if it's going to hold me up. He takes a first step. He kind of Let's a little loose on the boat, and he takes that first step and begins to walk, and all of a sudden he realizes he's walking on the water. This must be the Lord. This must be who he says he is. Look at me, guys. I'm walking on the water. And then his faith goes out the window. When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Now, here's where Peter does a great thing. He loses his faith because he starts to look at everything around him, which we're in the middle of failures. Guess what we look at? Do we look at Christ or do we look at the, the, the surmounting failure around me? I look at the failure. He takes his eyes off of Christ and looks at the thing around him and begins to sink. He's going down. The failure is coming to pass. It's going to take him under. But now he applies wisdom and he applies faith. Lord, there's wisdom. Who is the only one who can save him? Lord, the one that he's just said, prove to me that you are who you say you are, he did. Walk on the water, he did. This must be the Lord, so Lord, and now here comes faith. Save me. And he does. He reaches down, pulls him out of the water. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. And then he said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt. You knew it was me. You knew I was the one. You knew it was the Lord. You knew I could save you, and you were walking on the water. You were doing it. Why did you doubt? And I love the next passage. When they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Who's in control? Verse 33, then those who were with him in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now they begin to apply wisdom. Wow, if I'm walking on the water, he goes under, Jesus saves him, they get in the boat. Why do you doubt? Now they worship him. Kind of begs the question, why didn't they worship him before? But here's the application of this faith. Jesus saves him, pulls him up so that he can stand on the faith of who's in the middle of the failure with him. He learns this incredible lesson of who's in, who's in that failure with him. Uh, Mother Teresa, there's a story about Mother Teresa. The story about her is that people used to laugh at her when she would say, I want to start a great orphanage. Her detractors came to her and said, what do you have that could allow you to start a great orphanage? She said, I have three shillings. And they laughed her out of town. She finally got an opportunity to explain why she wanted to start this great orphanage, and they said, you only have three shillings. You can't possibly start a great orphanage. And Mother Teresa said this. She said, with three shillings, Teresa can't do a single thing. But with God and three shillings, there is nothing Teresa cannot do. 
The faith to stand on Christ is the one that you say, Lord, save me. In the middle of my failure, Lord, save me. I see you in the middle of it. I'm asking you. I'm crying out to you. Pull me out of it. And what Peter found Jesus to be is trustworthy in the middle of a failure. Selwyn Hughes, a wonderful pastor, wrote this in his devotion on this passage. He said, failures are only temporary tests to prepare us for more permanent triumphs. When I walk through a failure, am I looking at it as it's going to destroy me, the cracks are going all, or is it just a small scar that I see Christ in the middle of that he has bolstered my faith because he's got something else in mind for me? The lesson learned here is that in Christ, I have the faith to stand on him in the middle of a trial. So we have wisdom. And we have faith, two wonderful gifts in the midst of this. Let me give you the third one. The third one is this. It's the grace to serve. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now let me just kind of break that down real quick because there's a lot of alls in there. But Paul says God is able to make all grace abound to you. So all grace that's at his disposal is yours. And he's able to do that. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, in other words, his grace covers everything, you may have an abundance for every good work. What's he called us to? Serve him, be in the midst of the work with him, expand his kingdom, show him off, manifest him. We saw this last week. He intends on us, even through our brokenness, to be these incredible pieces of beauty because we manifest him to the world. Now he says, in grace, my grace covers your failure so that you can, through that grace, serve me. And this story... This is, the one, this is the one we all know Peter for. This comes out of Matthew chapter 26. Let me give you the background real quick. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. Jesus said to them, they're in the upper room. He's now fed them. He's washed their feet. They're getting ready to go out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he looks at them and he says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And listen to what he said. He says to the disciples, here's what's getting ready to happen to me. I'm going to let you know what's going on. By the way, he didn't have to do that, but he does. He gives them the game plan. The game plan is this. You're all, when I go to the cross, you're all going to run away. Because Zechariah 13 prophesied that, that all like sheep are going to fall away. And then he says... But after I have been raised, by the way, did you hear that, disciples? After I have been raised, by the way, let me say it one more time. After I have been raised, though I'm going to the cross and you're all going to be scattered, after I've been raised, I'm going to come meet you. Any of that sink in with the disciples? Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Pride rears its ugly head in Peter's life all the time. Boy, can I identify with that. Pride after pride after pride. Jesus, you've just said we're going to all be scattered, and you've just said you're going to rise again the third day. You've just said then you're going to meet us in Galilee, and what I'm telling you is I won't stumble. 
Even if every one of the other disciples, guess who? What contrast is he showing here? By the way, you other disciples, you're kind of a step below me because I, Peter, will never stumble. Jesus said, surely I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now here comes Peter again. How many times has Peter said, after Jesus says something, Peter says, no, that's not going to happen, Lord. (laughs) Even though you're the Lord of the universe, I'm just telling you you're wrong. Here it comes again. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said, we're with you. Then we know what happens. Verses 69 through 75, I want to just give you the, the, just the inside track on this. Now, Peter sat outside the courtyard. Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken away. Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him saying, you were with Jesus of Galilee. Now, I, I have to describe to you here, this servant girl, she had a taser. She was seven foot three. She had armor covering her entire body. She had a shield and she had a sword and an AK-47 under her shield. No, this was a servant girl who came to Peter and said, you were with him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee. He denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're saying. I will die with you. And when he'd gone out, to the gateway. Another girl saw him. Now, she was an Amazon and really scary. Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied them with an oath. I don't know the man. An oath is something you didn't do. You didn't take an oath, especially when it was a lie. Finally, verse 72, but again, he denied him with an oath. Verse 73, and a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you're also one of them for your speech betrays you. And he began to curse and, do you know that? It wasn't just that he denied him, he cursed and he swore. The old blue collar Peter fisherman came to the surface. He said, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Perhaps the greatest example of a failure you're going to ever see. This is only a couple of hours later after he said, I will die with you. And this happens. Can you imagine what the next three days were like for Peter? As Jesus is taken away and he's crucified and he knows nothing about it other than Jesus has been arrested and killed. And his last words to Jesus, his last words about Jesus, his opportunity to stand was met with, I don't know him. Before we condemn Peter too much, I can't tell you how many times, in my own way, in the middle of conversation with people, I have said things and done things that would have equated with, I don't know the man. So the next Jesus rises from the dead, Peter goes down, sees the the grave clothes, he believes that Jesus is resurrected. Over the next 40 days, Jesus appears to the disciples two times, and now a third time comes. And this is the conclusion of the story. This is the grace part of the story here. This comes out of John, chapter 21. 
We know the story. We talked about this in Moments with the Savior. They're out on the boat. Peter goes out to fish. He hasn't caught anything all night. Gee, does that sound familiar? A guy on the shore shore says, "Um, put your net on the right side of the boat. You might catch something. 153 fish come in. Peter immediately recognizes it's Christ. Now, remember, for 40 days, he hasn't had an opportunity to get in front of Christ. He swims, comes to the shore, and finds Jesus with a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread over an open flame. When they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Here's your opportunity to show them the kind of guy you are. Here's your opportunity to say, yes, Jesus, I was better than these. I stood in the gap. I was the one. I never denied you. No, that isn't what he said. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In the Greek, that is a pointed question right back to Jesus. He said, feed my lambs. Excuse me? You want me to serve you now? You you mean to tell me I, I actually am worthy of serving you now? He asked him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. I can't imagine that Peter isn't going, wow. I'm having an opportunity to be forgiven. Grace poured out upon me. And not only that, but he's given me an opportunity to serve him. Third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. Wisdom. You know that I love you. Faith. Feed my sheep. Grace poured out in abundance. Failure are those places, the testing, the firing for us because the Lord has something bigger for us. He has something different for us. He has something in place of failure. That Failure is the thing that we experience to get through it because he's molding and shaping us, testing us for something else. It's been said that God has three sorts of servants in the world. Some are slaves and serve him from fear. Others are hirelings and serve him for wages. And the last are sons that serve him because they love him. Gee, isn't that where Peter was? So how do my failures not become fatal? First, we take the gifts that God has given us, the wisdom to see Christ in the middle of them. Second, we see the faith to stand on Christ, in Christ, and for Christ. Amen? And the third thing is we get the grace to know who we are, worthy, who he is, the one who has lavished us with grace, and we see purpose in life, that we are so loved. Even in the midst of our failures, we are so loved, and that gives us this wonderful opportunity. I want to tell you what Peter Wise says. Peter Wise is this wonderful pastor who's written a number of devotions, but I want you to hear what Peter Wise says. He mentioned an experience that encouraged him time and again. He said, I had a friend who used to call me on the phone on Monday mornings. I'd pick up the phone, and this minister would say, hello, this is God. I have a gift for you today. I want to give you the gift of failing. Today, you do not have to succeed. I grant that to you. And then he would hang up. Well, I said I'd sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes just reflecting on what had just been said, and then it struck me. This 
is the gospel. God's love means it's okay even to fail. You don't have to be the greatest thing in the world. You can just be you. And he concluded it and he said, God not only says I can fail, but I can fail gloriously. I can fail wonderfully because he's in the middle of it with me. Failure, the little scar. What does it keep from cracking all the way? Wisdom, faith, grace. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for next week as Mark identifies the sufferings of affliction. For more information about this series and Grace School of Theology, visit our website at gsot.edu. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.